podcasting from Lund, Sweden, home of the hopelessly congested E22 highway, Eurovision cutie pie Mont Selmelöv, and one of the most advanced laboratories in the world, the Max 4. This is Intronauts, bringing you inside the Max 4 facility, where you get to meet some of the greatest minds and the explorers of tomorrow. I am your host, Toril Kornfeldt, together with communications officer Laura Raster. Yes, and today we chat with physicist and founding father of Max 4, Professor Mikko Eriksson, about his humble beginnings and vision for the future. So, Michael, so nice to have you here. I'm also happy to be here. Let's start with the most basic questions. What is Max 4? How would you describe this facility? Mm. It belongs to a class of what we call synchrotron radiation facilities. And what is that? That's, let's say, photon factories where you produce X-rays. And uh, those X-rays are used to characterize matter. Matter in a very broad sense. It could be gases, it could be fluids, it could be solid elements and um, also to get a very detailed knowledge of how they are built up, the structure, but also how they react, the dynamics. And to do that in a very sharp way, you need pretty big facilities. Yeah, because what you're describing is almost like a, a microscope and we're still we're sitting in this giant building. Yeah, we have a very powerful world built up of very, very small particles, very small cells. So we can't see them in an ordinary optic microscope. It's a rule that we can't observe things that are smaller than the wavelengths of the light which we are shining on them. So we've got to have very short wavelengths. And that's x-rays. So this is basically a facility to try to understand matter, observe it and to see what, what happens to it. But let's back up a bit. How, how did you end up here? What is your background? After the military service, I went to Lund to study nuclear physics because that was uh, a la mode at that time. And um, after a while... When I was a PhD student, there was a decision from the Research Council, which was called the Atomic Research Council, that the laboratory should be closed, the Lucy Synchrotron. So, the future looked dark. Then two gentlemen entered the small room I was sitting in and said, Oh, we have an idea, because we have lots of technical knowledge here. And you are very interested in electrodynamics. Couldn't you try to find out how we could build a small machine which we can operate at the university level, at the faculty? So was there a specific problem that you were trying to solve (laughs) with this? The idea was to build something which was good for nuclear physics experiments. But um, then my friend from Stockholm, he had just been in Wisconsin and came over and said, there is something called synchrotron radiation. 
and people are crazy about that in the United States. Couldn't you make the machine a little differently and get synchrotron radiation out from it? And we just looked at him. We were not so many at that time. We were seven people. We looked at him and said, ah, that's a good idea. I, I mean, we were, of course, scared that uh, everything should be closed down. And now, if this already was established in U.S., it will probably come to Sweden as well. Right, so you were sort of adopting an American idea like rock music or, or hamburgers or something like that. Yeah, more like or less, right. So the title of this episode is Sticky Tape, Steel Wire and a <laughs> Rotary Iron. What does that refer to? It started with the Max 1. It was heavily underfunded. It was understaffed. But we wanted to build that machine anyhow. So then you must find economic solutions to go away from the conventional way of producing things. At that time, it was no strong industry. We, we couldn't just buy. It didn't exist. So, for instance, magnets, those are typically half a cubic meter or so, were expensive. They had to be very precise. And we couldn't afford it, and we needed a hundred of them or so. So you can stamp sheets, transformer sheet, to very precisely. The problem is to put the sheets together. You can weld it, doesn't work because it's bending. Uh, so we said, why not glue it? How to glue it? You need a very thin layer of epoxy. And then um, a friend of mine, his mother, had a rotary iron. And if you put epoxy on the rotating drums and put in the sheet, this was hand-driven, and one is shuffling in all the sheets and one is pouring epoxy on, on the rollers, And then you stick them together in a very precise way, put them in an oven so the epoxy is hardening. Then you get out something like a solid piece of iron, laminated iron, and all sheets are insulated from each other. So that works fine. But the rotary iron, because we forgot to clean it, so it was really stuck. I never dare to visit the owner again. <laughs> <laughs> and and else it was, let's say, it it was tape and uh, and wire. As I said, it was not the best machine in the world, but the people who made the experiments they knew what they were doing, so they were happy to have higher performance, and they succeeded very well. We noticed we had a use of society, which was. Pretty large, in fact. They didn't use synchrotron radiation, but other sources. But they came immediately to Max 1. It was creme de la creme in this kind of science. So reports started to flow out from the Max 1 facility. So then we had a user society in our back. We were backed up by them and could build the next one, Max 2 which was a flagship for many years, 
But now it seemed to be an end on that. Because when we tried to make it even better, the machines became unstable and the electrons which are generating the X-rays are falling out of the machine immediately. So do you remember when you came up with the idea, this solution to that? How did it happen? Let me first describe with a few words how the machine works. You have a, a ring of magnets which are bending the electrons so you get a closed orbit so they can rotate in the machine for billions of turns. Within a vacuum chamber of a couple of centimeter diameter. Then it turned out, as the theory developed for electron accelerators, that we could arrange the magnets in such a way that the driving terms for the instability cancelled. And we were, of course, unsure. Have we made the calculations correctly? Is this sound or doesn't it work? But then I made a tour in the United States to the bigger labs and presented the ideas just to get second opinion, to get criticism, which I wrote down everything. And I can say that everyone shook their head in sorrow. They, they were very friendly, but they were sorry. And they said, don't do it. Don't do it. You kind of think that in science and in physics, people will love it when you come up with these new uh, revolutionary ideas. Why do you think you got such strong reactions to this idea? I think Max Lab was a small laboratory up in Greenland or anything like that. And here a guy is coming from a small laboratory we never heard of and presenting new ideas. And if you make something unconventional, we have to do quite different magnets, not in the usual way. And we have everywhere groups which are experts in their fields, and they are very good. They know a lot. But they know what they have done, and they are a bit hesitating to skip everything of that, it, it's, it's, it's something wrong here. It can't be true. I, I, I guess that is the background. And I remember one presentation where, that was not during the tour, it was later. The, the director of the lab said, you don't do anything good by telling stories. We have to be serious here. So the really big idea that you had, the really sort of revolutionary thing about the Max 4 Labs is this ability to keep the electrons stable in this giant ring. And then once they are stable and you found that stability with the help of the magnets, then you can harness those electrons to, to sort of understand matter and, and sort of use it as a mm. microscope. Or It's true. We wanted to decrease the dimensions of the beam, a pretty big factor, a factor of 10 or so. 
to get a very clearly shining point instead of a more fluffy uh, sauce. But all of this sort of psychology, all of these people doubting you, how did you sort of keep your spirit up? Didn't you get like super depressed and thought that, you know, maybe maybe I'm just wrong? It's different from person to person. I, I, I didn't care. And I got support from the group. I, I mean, we had lots of discussions and uh, many ideas. I, I mean, it sounds like I am the one, but it, it's a team, honestly. And... Uh, After I visited some six laboratories, uh, of course I went home and the group sat down and we took remark after remark and some were relevant, some were not. We changed a little here, a little there. I think it was a very good tour. And uh, then we um, thought that uh, now we have a stable machine with a high performance, and then we sent in the application. This machine couldn't have been built without help from our friends. At many labs, there were persons who really supported it and came with ideas which we, um, which we absorbed. And uh, then when uh, the project was funded and we started to actually produce everything. Then many labs helped us because still we were too small to, to, to succeed with this project. I remember when I was in Novosibirsk and Gennady uh, Kulipanov, who was the director there, and I was complaining because putting up the ring, then we had four teams going around and one team should put up the, all the vacuum system. Which, And I tried to get vacuum experts here for two months to set up the system from everywhere. It didn't work. So I complained to Gennady Kulipanov and said, I can't find any vacuum people putting up the ring. And he patted me on the shoulder and said, don't worry, Michael, I send my boys. Um, what would you say to these people now that, that helped you along the way? Of course, we thank them. And often we try to employ them. And in some cases we succeeded. I will not mention names, of course, here, but there are several people who are burning for that. We're sitting in this sort of giant building today with, <laughs> yeah. a, with a giant uh, uh, accelerator and, and mm. a giant sort of circle for, for the electrons, uh, very far away from the rotary iron and the sticky tape and so on. How proud are you to sit here today? Astronomically. 2016, I was 72 years old when I took me two microseconds to decide to retire. The operator started to shoot the electrons into the MAX-4 rings, and at one of the first shots, it went three turns around the machine without any trimming or anything. We just plugged in all magnet values which we had calculated and I saw it go around and then I understood 
is not gonna be more funny than it is now. Now it's lots of work to finish, to clean up, but it works. So two millionths of a second, and then suddenly I realized I had decided to step down because my temper is not so suited to clean up afterwards. I, I can start lots of things, but there are people which are much better in um, fulfilling the project. And I knew that. I knew that. Sounds like a, a perfect time to sort of step away at that sort of height of triumph. I think so. <laughs> if you look ahead, what do you hope that Max 4 will lead to in the future? The accelerators are only a part of the project. Even bigger is the project of getting all the experimental stations. We have room for, for some 30 and some 16, I think, are, are financed. It's time to harvest now. So can you talk a bit sort of broader of what kind of questions will you be able to answer? What sort of research areas are you looking into? Yeah, I'm just a poor machine builder. That's really a challenge to go into that when you have the experts around and some of them might listen to this program. So I'm a little hesitating. I, I have my perception, of course, but uh, it's going to be criticized if I go much in detail. But I think the broad picture which you asked for is coming back to this word we cannot see and which is ruling everything. Take medicals, drugs, for instance. The old way of making medicines or drugs is they mixed lots of things, gave it to the cat, which was sick. And if you were lucky, the cat was better, or in most cases, it just died. If it succeeded, you try another animal, which is more like us, etc., etc. This takes an awful time. What they do nowadays is that they want to see what the molecule in the body looks like, the structure of it, and also which elements is built by and how those elements are situated in the molecule. And then they have sophisticated programs saying, oh, if we move that sulfur atoms from this position to that position, it will stop the virus attack. All larger medical companies have access to synchrotron radiation. As we can make, we call it brilliance, the photon flux in a small area, higher and higher. They can look at finer and finer details and see structures they are not able to see now. So that's the demand of having spatial resolution but it's also so that when reactions happen, if we look for the dynamics, often ultra-fast, one electron is jumping from one atom to another and the molecule is changing its behavior completely. Then you need a source 
so you can put stroboscope light on it to find out this happening and this process started this project. And then you really can start to steer everything and also make new materials. And when you think about all these different, like, fantastic examples of, of how X-ray light can can help solve challenges and make new materials, if you think about your own opinion of this, um, what you regard as maybe the most important area for MEX4 at this time or in the future? When we started with MEX1, it was certainly physicists which came to find the properties of the physical properties of matter including astronomy. Now what is increasingly important where MAX4 and, I would say, the system machines coming up a little later because everyone are building these kind of machines now. I think it's a dozen or so. The sharp thing is life sciences, I believe. That we are starting to be able to look for the details in biology where medicine is one technique, but biology is much bigger. And we had an engineering period, I think, where development was dominated by engineering thinking, how to make things better. Then by observing nature... I think we realized that nature was much more clever than we were. For that, we needed to understand how it worked. There are many examples of that. It's interesting to follow it. So nowadays, I think we are more inspired by nature and try to project nature's solutions to the solving of our problems. How is nature made? There are so many examples. A fly cannot go upside down in in the ceiling, but it does. There are so many examples of that. And trying to find out how has nature made it. And it's uh, fascinating for a retired professor not building machines any longer to see all the ideas which are coming up and all the environmental movements and everything which has a focus on nature. Thanks a million for listening to Intronauts with me, Toril Kornfeldt and Laura Raster. And if you like the show, please leave us a nice review on iTunes. And don't forget to turn in to the next episode where we talk to Stephen Malloy, Miriam Linbai, and Ann Terry about the inner workings of the facility. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>